the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, end insight for Star Empire Trade Talks as Milky Way offers ice cream concessions. Author Oddness and Haunted Podness. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of An Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel, and Jonathan, you want to introduce yourself again? I am Bain Intern Jonathan Graubird, still in one piece. We have part one of a roundtable discussion this time by Bain author spouses on the podcast. Hey, this was really interesting and even filled with some insights. Included in the pod are Emily Butler, DJ Butler's wife, Bridget Correa, Larry Correa's wife, Dan Hoyt, Sarah Hoyt's husband, Maggie Nowakowska, Susan Matthews' wife, Mona Pinnett, Brendan Dubois' wife, and Sharon Rice Weber, David Weber's wife. Wow, what a gathering that was. Join us as the spouses dish very positively on their authorious other halves and provide insight into the creative process from some very close observation. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, Leiden Universe novel, An Alliance of Equals. Now here's the news. There's new free fiction and nonfiction at the Bain.com website. May bring some great stuff for your reading enjoyment. Tell us about the free fiction this month, Jonathan. Well, first off is an interesting, cool, and slightly odd piece. This is Ghost Flotilla U-Boats Embarkation by Susan R. Matthews. U-Boats unmoored from time. Captain Lax is not the happiest submersible commander when allied attacks force him to dive far deeper than he expected to go. And when he surfaces only to find himself in a very large body of water that doesn't seem right somehow, in a time that definitely doesn't seem correct, the adventure is only beginning. He Has his command ended up in the future, the past? Only time will tell. And we also have free nonfiction available at the Bain.com website. What is the nonfiction for this month? Now available as free nonfiction at the Bain.com front page is Character of the Female Warrior, an FAQ, by the very much real-life Air Force officers Captain Casey Azell and Lieutenant Colonel Jen Whetstone. Powerful women, from Red Sonia to Ellen Ripley to Black Widow, with many stops in between, the figure of the female warrior in fiction has always had a strong appeal. But strong women who know how, how to fight aren't confined to the page of our favorite novels or the celluloid of our favorite films. Now Ezel and Whetstone discuss what it's like to serve in the military as a woman and to tackle some of the tropes of the female warrior in fiction. Character of the Female Warrior and FAQ by Captain Casey Ezel and Lieutenant Colonel Jen Whetstone of the USAF and Ghost Flotilla U-Boats Embarkation by Susan R. Matthews are now available at Bain.com for your reading enjoyment, and they will remain available at Bain eBooks in the free eBook collections Free Stories 2018 and Free Nonfiction 2018. 
So download those and happy reading. This is part one of a two-part interview. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Welcome a bunch of author spouses to the Bain Podcast. Hello, folks. How are Hello. you? Hello. Hello. Well, we've done a spouse roundtable a couple of years ago, and it went over great. So we thought we'd do it again. Um, and we have with us this time some veterans and also some, some newbies to the podcast. We have, First of all, we have Emily Butler, who is Dave Butler's wife. Uh, DJ Butler is his uh is his writing name, and we have Bridget Correa, who is Larry Correa's wife. We have Dan Hoyt, who is Sarah A. Hoyt's husband. Of course, I mean, everybody here uh, also has other credits, but th this is the, the main credit that we're talking about tonight. <laughs> so we have uh, Maggie Nowakowska, who is Susan R. Matthews' wife. We have Mona Pinnett. Is it Mona Pinnett or Mona Pinnett, Mona? Neither, Pinnett. Panette, Panette. Oh, think about Jeanette and Yvette, same kind of thing. Uh, she is Brendan Dubois' wife, and we have Sharon Rice Weber, who is David Weber's wife. And uh, welcome, welcome, welcome all. I thought, and that was basically last name al alphabetical. Maybe we can start that way. And what is, and I thought I'd let each of you momentarily, you know, want to keep it short, obviously. But what? tell us what your origin story is, how you met, how long you've been in the throes of romance with your spouse, and perhaps we can start with Emily Butler. All right. Dave and I have been deeply in love for 22 years. He, uh, he was an, a Mormon missionary in Italy, and he had a colleague who was my little sister's boyfriend, but who was also a very good friend of mine, and he thought we'd be compatible, so he set us up, and that's how it happened. I flew out to Utah from a brother's wedding and sort of met him on the campus of BYU, thinking that he was a lot older than I was, not realizing he's actually quite a bit younger than I am, but it didn't seem to make a difference because after about two hours, I was smitten. So that's our origin story. It didn't take very long to seal the deal. Uh-huh. And now you have kids and everything. Three kids, so I'm I'm pretty much in it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, um, what about you, Bridget, Korea? Larry and I met at Utah State University, and we kind of clicked, sort of like Emily. Within a week, both of us knew that we were pretty much going to get married and live happily ever after with some bumps along the road, I was sure. And we've been together for 20 years, and we have four kids. So I'm kind of cool. stuck in it, too. And you both run lots <laughs> of marathons together, right? No. Who, Larry? You're kidding, right? <laughs> Just, yes, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, but you are a runner, right? That's that's one of the things we learned from. Uh, I am a very slow runner, but I am a runner. And Larry is a sitter, minor miniature. Larry is a world of tanks. He is a world of tanks aficionado and a tabletop gamer. And I am the oddball in the family in that I'm the only one who really doesn't delve deep into the nerd culture. I appreciate it, but my kids think that I am the biggest loser mom ever because I don't get all of their anime jokes and all of their like hit well, point jokes. 
but <laughs> so you know, I'm the oddball. Yeah. Well, we will uh, we'll get into more of that soon. Uh, Dan, how about you and Sarah? Sarah's last name is just judging by her accent, probably wasn't originally Hoy, was it? Of course not. It was Almeida. Sarah, contrary to what some people believe, because her command of English is so good, she was actually raised in Portugal. She she was not a military brat. She was born to Portuguese parents and raised in a village in Portugal, speaking Portuguese as her primary language. Um, in fact, English is her third language, not even her second. French was her second language. She learned several other ones along the way. But the the reason for for pointing that out is she was an exchange student in Ohio the year after I graduated high school. And uh, I was young, uh, so when I went to college, I was just barely turning 18. <laughs> I was, and uh, my mother gave her to me as a birthday present, basically. Um, sat her, invited her to my birthday party, uh, sat her down on my lap. I don't know how she managed to pull that off. We were both mortally embarrassed. And uh, during the ensuing year, we did not date at all, really. Uh, we, I think we went roller skating once with other people, and that was it. And then she went home. Four years later, she called me kind of out of the blue. We talked for two hours. I was very late to work, <laughs> was on my way out to work at the time. And three months later, I proposed on the phone, still had not seen her in four years. Good so Lord. I got, wow. As you can imagine, I caught a lot of flack from that from people that I knew uh, who said, gee, we'll, we'll, maybe she looks like she's been hit by a truck at this point. And I'm like, I don't care. That's not the point. <laughs> I love her. Did she call mind. you from? Where did she call you from? Uh, that's a whole other story. We're not going to get into quite uh, okay. right now. But um, right. she called from from Portugal uh, from her brother's office. He worked for the phone company. And then over the next three months, during the, those three months, we talked probably a couple hours a day. She would call when she could in the middle of my workday, and I would take lunch, whatever time it happened to be, nine in the morning, three in the afternoon, and I'd take lunch when she called. And everybody in the office, it was a very small office, 10 people knew what was going on. So I went over in was it March, I guess, that year for Easter to uh, do the traditional thing and propose to her father, and who does not speak English, by the way. <laughs> and I do not speak Portuguese. So as you can imagine, that was lots of fun. Um, and then she came back with me in, at the end of the school year. Um, not with me, but I, I had to be there for another three months to finish her exams. Um, and then she came back at the end of her year um, during the summer, and we got married about nine months after she had first called me. And we've been married for 30, almost 33 years now. Wow, that is, that's amazing, that, uh, that sight unseen. That's like you got together online before there was such a thing as getting together online. To a certain extent, but I mean, I had seen her four years earlier. You had when seen she was her, 18. yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you when probably remembered that sitting on the lap experience quite well. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, so well, and we really... have, of course, two kids, one in, yeah. um, who's about to finish his aeronautics, aeronautical and mechanical engineering, electrical engineering degree with minors in physics and math, and the other one in um, third year med school. 
Well, that's so as you can imagine, we got married out. very young, <laughs> and it was and the they, first marriage for both of us. Well, that is super cool. That's a super cool origin story. Maggie uh, Nowakowska, how about you and Susan Matthews? Well, Susan and I met through um, science fiction, Star Trek, Star Wars. I was very active in it in the 70s, and I had started writing some fan fiction, which was back, this is back in the day of print scenes when people were writing um, new new episodes. It was a different kind of writing than you see a lot now uh, online with fan fiction. There, we were basically treating it like a writer's group for nerds. And uh, one of my um, editors, who lives in California, had been getting letters from a Lieutenant Matthews out of uh, Germany. And she said, you know, this woman is moving back to Seattle. Maybe uh, you'd like to get in touch with her. She's read some of your stuff. And um, see if she'd uh, like to get reacquainted with the local people. So Susan um, wrote me a note and said, I'm going to be back in town in November. And I wrote back to her and said, you just missed the big party. But why don't you come back, you know, in a couple of weeks and we'll get together with uh, some of our friends. And that was November of 1978. And in August of 1979, we moved in together. In March of 1980, we exchanged rings. And in December of 2012, we were allowed to make it legal. So we've been together for um, going on 40 years. Wow, that's that's wonderful. So Susan was in the military, and she got out right then and, and moved yes, back to was, the Seattle area? Yes, yes. Her family was living in the Seattle area. Her uh, father um, had left the service. He was a colonel. And her mother's and father's plans were first to move back to Idaho, where they grew up. But her mother had fallen in love with the mountains and the water that we have out here. So they settled in Seattle. And Susan came back, and uh, I remember picking her up. She lived in a little garret in the university district, University of Washington. And she picked her up, brought her back to the house, got some friends together, and it hasn't stopped since. (laughs) That's great. Um, Have you remained uh, Spanish? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I would say that my adult friendships have come out of my experience in fandom. It was a very small group back in those days. Uh, We were all the uh, outside kids. And uh, so everybody got to know each other pretty well. We hung out together a lot. Most The group we ended up having around here um, mostly were vets. We had, I think, every service covered. And uh, I I enjoyed fandom because these were people I could talk with. I'd been reading science fiction since I took Space Cat on Venus out of the library when I was six. And so I'd been reading science fiction all my life. And that was what I I knew to talk. I enjoyed Star Trek when it came out. And when I discovered that fans were getting together and holding fanish conventions, um, I got involved with that. There was a local group here called Starbase 12, and I got to meet them. And they showed me some print scenes, and I read some of it, and I said, I can do better than that. And so I started uh, writing because my friends and I had been writing in high school, you know, a lot of stories. So I'd been doing it, and 
in the 70s, I was in advertising. I was a copywriter on radio, then in advertising agencies, and basically I was supporting myself by doing business writing. And by the time I met Susan, I had just started at Boeing Space Center, which was very exciting. And uh, eventually, Susan came to work for Boeing also. But yes, our group stayed together. Right now, after all these years, some people have died. Some people have moved away. Um, so it's a little smaller group than it was back then. And of course, the net, you know, made such a difference in the Fanish world. Mm-hmm. So I'm slowly beginning to become more acquainted with some of the younger fans, and uh, especially with the young women, trying to tell them, you know, there really is a history of women in fandom. And don't let any of the boys tell you differently. Because yeah, we were yeah. putting out hundreds of print scenes in the 70s and the 80s. The people yeah, about to be it. this idea that, that, that yeah, I know. And uh, Tony has made, uh, my boss, Tony Weisskopf, has, has made a big point of this in several things she's written as well. That yeah. um, the history of, you know, science fiction is not a place that's ever been unfriendly to women at all. <laughs> it's been the most welcoming. Oh, heavens uh, no. My mother read it in the 30s. You know, she had her docs, and she also read Doc Savage. She, of course, didn't keep any of them, so I had to pay for my own college. Uh, no, no, no first editions in the family. But, yes, my mother wanted me to be the first woman on the moon. If I couldn't do that, she wanted me to be a nuclear physicist. And she got a, basically a writer and an artist instead, <laughs> but forgave me when I went to work for Space Station, you know, Space Boeing, and we started working on the IOS and space shuttle stuff, and my boss has his name on a plaque on the moon. She well, was happy you're not the only, uh, only one who disappointed a mother who wanted their <laughs> – didn't really want to write her. So, uh, and Mona – let me uh, let me move on to Mona, who yes. is married to Brendan Du Bois, who is um, Brendan's uh, was first uh, known as a mystery writer, right? But that's not your origin story, anyway. So. Um, well, uh, I, unlike Dan, I was quite a bit older when Brendan and I met. I started out my career in business and had moved my career along and kind of left the personal side of my life to the side. So much so that my mother would occasionally ask me if, you know, are you ever going to really meet anybody and maybe get married? What were you doing? Corporate world, I worked in finance, I worked in marketing, and I ended up as the chief operating officer of a medical device company before I retired. So I'd been very driven in my career. And uh, when I was 35, I was doing consulting work for digital equipment. And at that point, we still had department secretaries. And the department administrative assistant, I should say, was this lovely woman whose daughter was married to Brendan's brother. And she asked me one day, she said, I know, she says, you love to canoe. Would you like to meet somebody who enjoys canoeing? And I thought, what have I got to lose? So the two of us met. Uh, we went on a canoeing, a blind canoeing date, and uh, we canoed up the Exeter River with his brother and sister-in-law, and we just had a marvelous time. Um, and it was actually, I met him like at 11 o'clock in the morning, and I didn't go back home until 10.30 at night. We went out to dinner. We had a great, it was a very long first date. Um, and we just enjoyed spending time together. 
And I, I just got such a great charge out of it because we actually went out to the Exeter River. And it feels great to me now because the Exeter River actually goes behind our house now. So the house that we live in is actually on that same river. Oh, that's, um, that's in New Hampshire? That's in New Hampshire, right. So we've kind of, we've both stayed kind of, uh, ultimately come back being close to home to family. It's one of those things about Brendan that I really loved was he felt about family the same way I did. Um, and the two of us like to do things like canoeing and skiing. And um, so we shared a lot of outdoor activities. Uh, but we dated for maybe – so I met him at 35. We dated for uh, about five years. I had the hardest time getting him to commit, but he finally did. <laughs> and uh, we've been married for almost 23 years. Well, that's excellent. Um, um, the, f- the first night I met him, we took yes. a walk down um, what's Hampton Beach, and he was – telling me about a book he was writing, um, which was in his mystery line, which was his the first book that came out in the Lewis Cole series. And I was just fascinated by it, and that was the first book that he ended up getting published. So I always think that's very special that that first night he was telling me about what he loved, and it all came to fruition. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So you knew him before. <laughs> before, yeah. He'd, he'd had short stories published at that point, but he hadn't had any novels published. Right. Seamus Award-winning short stories, probably. Right. Um, so he, it was, at the, you know, really at the very beginning of his writing career. And, you know, I, you know you, I kind of wondered what was ever going to come of this. Because you do wonder, is like, is he is he going to be able to to really break into? It's a difficult business to be in, and I'm just so proud of him that he's he's been successful, not just in one genre, but but you know now he's also in science fiction. And what was wonderful for us when that first happened is one of the things that brought us together, that kept us together, is. One of our favorite Friday, Saturday night activities was watching Star Trek Next Generation. We'd sit down and plan to have dinner and watch it every Saturday night. So we both have an interest in, in science fiction, and it's something that's really kind of kept us together and kept us intrigued with the world. Very cool. And I know that uh, Brendan has told me that he secretly always was a science fiction writer at heart, so... Oh my God, yes, <laughs> and that's that's his true love, without a doubt. And I'm, it's just really wonderful that he's he's found a home in science fiction. Yeah, well, he's great, and you're great. So let's uh, and Sharon Rice Weber, Sharon. Um, I've heard you and David's story, of course, but I would share it again with us. Uh, um, this, this has to do with bookstore, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it does. I. Apologize for my voice. I'm trying really hard to get sick for Manticon, so um, I'm a little raspy. But, uh, yeah, I was uh, at that incarnation in my life. I was working in a bookstore as a, a system manager, and I was in charge of the science fiction and fantasy section because I was the rustic geek or nerd. And this big honking guy walks in and 
you know, black leather, everything, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this guy up to? And he went straight back to science fiction, and I go over and, you know, we do the, if you like this book, you'll like that guy, you know, and he was like, yeah, I read that guy, and I didn't like it, so, and then he finished up with, I've written a book, you know, and I'm like, yeah, okay, how many times have I heard that one lately, you know, but he really had, he'd sold uh, his first book to Bain, it hadn't been released yet, and uh, so um, he kept coming into the store, and he started hanging out with my herd of friends, as we call ourselves, uh, we did gaming and, you know, went to the movies and read the books and hung out together, kind of like other spouses have said, you know, with other fans of the genres. And um, he uh, he was a little slow. Um, he uh, We knew each other for about seven years before he finally figured out that maybe we were closer than just buddies and friends. Uh, we've been married 20 years uh, this past April. We celebrated it by doing our vow and uh again. And we'll be doing that again at Manticon as the Duke and Duchess, which is kind of fun with the fan club. And I got him invited to his first convention uh, ever He and that he went to as a pro. I got him his first autograph session ever. And that was with Rogers Elasney and Lois McMaster Bajold and Steve White. And I got him invited back the next year. So so I had a little something. I probably also bought his first book ever because I bought it before it was technically to go on the go on the shelves. So Yeah, yeah. And things have worked out. <laughs> well, you have the, 20 the, years the, and, uh, the twins and the uh, yeah, twenty years, the twin girls that uh, you adopted yep. from uh, uh, our, from the our daughters. Uh, yeah, they were born in Cambodia. They came home at fifteen months. Uh, they just um, they're sixteen and a half. They'll be seventeen in, in October. Our son uh, is a miracle baby. Will be fifth. Uh, Will be sixteen in December. There's about 14 months between the girls and Michael, and there was four weeks and two days between him arriving and the girls arriving, and just to make life interesting, he was about four weeks early. So, you know, that old thing about be careful what you pray for because you might get it, <laughs> and uh, we did as babe, so uh, spent the first month going, why did we want to have three kids? So. <laughs> But uh, now they're, you know, they're nothing but blessing. We love them all free, so. Yeah, they're wonderful kids. So let me ask a little bit about writer working habits. And uh, if any of you have anything specific um, that you have to deal with, with having a creative a creative spouse, uh, I don't know how we want to do this, but just, uh, just the general idea that I want to throw out is how do you deal with somebody who has to concentrate like like that to write a book or a story what do you what do you do with them when they're in that state or is it not a, pro- not a problem or or anything odd anyway that's the question anybody want to take a shot at that you learn an awful lot about subjects you weren't necessarily interested in at first i know a lot well, about sure. e-boats now <laughs> a lot about what? u-boats u-boats 
Yes, I know a lot about U-boats. I never thought I would. Maggie has written a U-boat story. She's like um, insanely crazy about U-boats right now, right? (laughs) Yes. Um, For me, that's that's basically you. Susan, I understand writing because I wrote for my career. And uh, so the uh, concentration isn't isn't a, a problem. I, I know how that works. I keep the dogs away. I keep them entertained. I don't let them bark at much. And the in, most interesting part is when Susan gets interested in something, she wants to share, which makes perfect sense. And so you learn an awful lot about stuff. You listen a lot. And listening helps the writer sort things out in her mind also. I don't ask too many questions much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, what about you, Emily? You um, also are a writer, um, and that's that's an interesting dynamic when you have two writers in the house, right? And Dan also is, is a writer. I'm sure. Yeah, we, a lot um, of you are. I, I, we don't, I, have I anything. don't know that the rest of you aren't. Anyway, uh, Emily, go ahead, please. Well, everybody's got their stuff. Uh, we're not at the point yet where we can pay all of our bills with writing, and so uh, Dave also has his day job, and we don't have anything close to a routine. We're just sort of driven by, you know, the kids' schedules and Dave's work, and then we both just hack out chunks of time whenever we can, and sometimes that's like at 9 o'clock at night, sometimes that's on a lunch break. It's just, it's when you can, and I've been sort of amazed at Dave's capacity to find time and concentrate on the couch, his focus is sort of almost abnormal. He's very good at shutting other stuff out. I have to remind myself to respect his process, and he's very respectful of my process. And sometimes it's really hard when three kids have simultaneous needs, and my husband is sitting on a couch looking at a computer, um, and I have to remind myself he's actually doing something that's vitally important to him. You know, he's not doing Facebook, he's creating a book, so I discipline myself, and he does the same thing, and the kids are into what he does and what I do, and they ask a lot of questions, so we just, it would be great if we had something like, you know, at 9 o'clock we do this, and then at 10 o'clock we do that. We don't. Every single day is different. He's often on an airplane, and I'm often carpooling, so we just, we day by day it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bridget, um, now I heard from Larry once that he started out with like this this cave-like closet with that had a basically concrete block wall. Um, oh, it was and, an unfinished room in our basement, and it there was no heat, there was no real light. You had a, a extension cord in uh, a power strip so that he could have a computer going and a little lamp, and he would sit in there. In the winter, he would sit with, like, a big puppy coat and a hat and three pairs of socks. And in the summer, it wasn't too bad because it was chilly. But that was that was his little cave. So as far as he's concerned, anything above that is just bonus. It's, you know, <laughs> he doesn't have to hold himself away. And he's got kind of a nice office now, but that's – and, you know, he's – when you talk about, like, the writing process, he's kind of a workaholic, so – He's always working. He's got a kind of a routine that he does during the day. That's just the sit-down time to write. He's always processing, and he's always um, thinking through whatever it is that he's, 
you know, story points that he's trying to change or character development. So in a way, it's it, it's the third person in our marriage. You know, we'll be sitting at dinner and he'll get that far away look. And I know he's, you know, chomping at the bit to talk about whatever character or plot twist. And he's trying really hard to respect that, you know, it's date night. Maybe I don't want to hear about it. But he's it's it's kind of a challenge, though, because... It's it's always there, and it's always something that's a part of our our life, and it's it's hard sometimes not to get a little frustrated that it's supposed to be family time, and yet his attention is divided. But at the same time, he has the freedom to during the day occasionally just stop everything and devote all of his attention to the family. So it's it's kind of a weird thing, and probably similar in feeling at least to what Emily was saying. It's it's a little bit you just every day is different and every day you kinda of have to, to carve out a new balance of, you know, responsibilities and time so that it works for today. Because tomorrow might be completely different and yesterday was completely different than today is. It it gets a little weird and it's it's hard to kind of talk about with other people because unless you're living it, it's hard to understand. And I don't know. I don't know if that's helpful. Hmm. Yeah, well, the 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 life of the creative person just doesn't match the hours sometimes. Dan, what about you and uh, Sarah's uh, work habits and life habits intermeshing? Well, um, I'm a programmer um, by trade. I'm actually a systems architect, but um, I do a lot of programming as well, which is actually far more artistic than you think. Um, there is an, it is an art form. It's not so much a set kind of science. It's It really is art. I've always been as uh, both of us are, are really of an artistic bent. She writes, um, she paints, she does uh, digital art now too as well. And uh, she does all kinds of writing, not just fiction, but she does several columns in, um, on the Internet, and she does uh, a couple of uh, blogs as well. Um, and so she's pretty much always writing in some form or another. I got pulled into it years ago in self-defense, I, as I said, I've I've always had an artistic bent myself. I've played the piano since I was eight, um, and um, you'll find actually that pianists and mathematicians tend to go together. Um, it's it's a very common combination. Um, and we decided that we were going to have a weekly writers group. Well, Sarah did, um, and told me that I was going to be part of it because that's the way Sarah rolls. Um, since we were hosting it in our house, I really didn't have a whole lot of choice. Well, when I started listening to the critiques that people had um, and were giving, uh, they started telling me, what do you do? Um, you know, what do you think? And I didn't have the vocabulary, so I studied until I did have the vocabulary to be able to to converse intelligently. Uh, and then I started writing myself. So. For her, she writes absolutely every day in some form. When we were first married and she told me that she wanted to write, 
I drew on my experience as an artist with piano and said, well, I know musicians play every day. That's what makes the difference between a, a good musician and a great musician. If you want to be a great writer, you need to write every day, I would think. So that's that was the, pretty much the goal that she gave herself, and, the, and she does that. Do you give her notes now that you've uh, now that you have the vocabulary, of course? Well, we spend we spend a lot of time uh, talking about plots and characters and and things like that. Um, I've read several of the uh, the seminal books, like Dwight Swain's books on um, on writing, um, Campbell, of course, because. It's, we write in science fiction and fantasy, and if you don't understand Campbell, you might as well write something else. <laughs> yeah. um, and so for a long time, we we spent quite a bit of time um, outside the time she was actively writing, talking about writing, um, so much so that our kids were immersed in it um, to the point where we've had several awkward conversations with school teachers. Um, uh, for instance, our youngest son, when he was in, I guess, kindergarten or first grade, um, quoted Shakespeare because Sarah was in the midst of doing the Shakespeare series at the time. Uh, and as a uh, result, we got a call from them and they called us in there and said, you know, why is he quoting Shakespeare? Uh, and we said, well, did he quote correctly? And she said, well, yes, but why are you making him watch Hamlet. We're not making him watch Hamlet. He loves it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's just the way it is. So our, our, both of our kids have been steeped into it um, uh, because that's that's what we talk about at the dinner table. That's what we talk about when we go on vacations. Um, we did get some very good advice from Kevin J. Anderson um, several years ago, which was to go away and take a weekend periodically and just go write. Go take it and get a hotel and write. He used to do like Disney cruises and stuff like that to go out and write um, or go off to the cabin and go hiking. Um, but uh, we're not that rich, so we go to hotels. Yeah. So we still do that periodically. We try to do that um, uh, every couple of months. Uh, that'll probably be more often as, we, as I get back into the swing of writing again because I've been writing for a while. I've just been really busy, but yeah, and the kids are doing well now, so you will have have time. So, well, let me uh, well they're, they're almost out of the house. We're almost empty nesters. <laughs> we're, we're so close. <laughs> yeah, boy, I can't wait, but it's, I've got years to go. So, uh, Mona, um, your 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 career is so much different than Brendan's, um, and presumably your life before you you met was was sort of a high pressure cooker kind of thing. Um how does how did that mesh together? I think we made a good compliments to each other. When we first got married, I worked from home and I'd be very focused in my office and he'd be very focused in his office. And we'd get together for lunch and he'd tell me what he'd been working on. And Brendan is Brendan can write more than anybody I know. He is very prolific. He literally writes 
Uh, he'll work on one book in the morning. He'll work on another book in the afternoon. And he may work on short stories in the evening or, or something else. But he is always writing. There are very few days in our life together where Brendan hasn't written. Um, and he actually, I think, suffers from withdrawal when he doesn't write. So I expected that to be something that was going to be sort of core in his life. Um, he was an English major, but he focused on journalism. So he worked for um, several years when he first started out as a reporter. And I think that level of discipline, because you haven't got a choice, you have to sit down every day, you get assignments, you have to write a story. And you just got to get it out there. And he is very used to being disciplined about his writing. And so he's he's always writing. And there are just times I have to look at him and say, you need to put the computer down now. We you know, we need to sit and talk about something or or you know, you need to you need to stop for a little bit so that we can spend some family time. So every so often I've got to pull him away just a little bit just to make sure that he's got some balance. But that's the you know, that's really the the single biggest issue. Um, like Dan, over time, um, he very early on had had me being one be, being his first reader. And at the very beginning, I did very light copy editing because I was very concerned about affecting his stories. And as time has gone on, I've gotten much more involved in editing what he produces. He writes wonderful women, but every so often there'll be dialogue and I'll just look at him and say, she wouldn't say that. Just wouldn't happen. And those are the kinds of things that I think I can help him with. And our agreement has always been I provide him with suggestions and edits, and then I never go back afterwards and read it again. Uh-huh. I, but you're really in it then. You're not it's not like something he does away from you. Exactly. So, yeah, I am involved in the stories. I I understand what he's doing. He shares with me as he's writing, but he's careful because he also wants me to feel the surprise, the anticipation, the tension in anything that he's writing. So he gives me a chance to really experience it for the first time. And and I've always said to him, I'm going to make suggestions, but it's yours. And so you take what you want, you leave the rest, and there's no, you know, there's no feeling on my part, well, I gave you the suggestion, you didn't take it. Well, it's not my story. If I if I really want to, you know, have something come out in that way, I'll write it. So mm-hmm. we've we've developed a really good relationship that way. And I've realized um, because he does so much work in mystery, he's really affected the way that I read mysteries and I I see television television programs that are mysteries or thrillers. He's really sharpened my ability to be able to look at 
a book or look at a movie and sit back and fairly early on say, I think I know who did it. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. he's given well, me that. Well, maybe that, that, that ruined just... anything for you? No, I think it's, I, to me, it's like solving a puzzle, so I think it's fun. Uh-huh. Cool. Uh, well, Sharon, you are also married to an intense, concentrating sort of guy who, you know, a tree might fall on him and he barely notices, like literally. <laughs> literally, yeah. That, how does, how does it work out between you? He's you twice, so. Well, David, when we first met, uh, was already working on, I think, like the second or third book. And he was in advertising with his parents for a while uh, before he started uh, writing. writing. And he's always been a night writer. He always likes that quiet time at the end of the day is the good beginning of a, of a work day for him. So when we first married, it was it was a little rough but you know i told him i said you know you were a writer when we met you were a writer when we married you know i'm not gonna make you change anything on account of of that now when the kids came along we made a a conscious decision that we were going to try really hard to always have family dinner as a family together that's worked pretty well except when i'm going through yet another surgery i've had quite a few and David has had to deal with that, and sometimes that takes him away from his writing, especially because, you know, he may be the the parent who's driving during that time while I'm recuperating and not, not allowed to drive. So it's gotten um, easier now that the girls are older, they're driving. So that's... Now, does David does he have an office that's outside of the house? I get the yeah. I don't know, yeah. but I get the impression it is right. For, for a while, he was he was writing in one of uh, our, our spare bedrooms, and it wasn't quite as bad as what Larry and Bridget were dealing with, uh, you know. But it was it was not necessarily quiet um, at, at night. Um, right after we got married, like within a year, he fell and broke his his right wrist into about 57 pieces and he was he had to have surgery on it and the whole thing and during that time he could not type at all and it was killing him he was going through withdrawal like uh, other writers you know he just he could not not write so that's when he started using the voice activated software which was fine except when he gets really angry with his software and his computer and he starts getting a little vocal with it, and he gets a little loud, and, you know, then he's waking the kids up because he's screaming at his computer because he's had to correct the same word 14 times. So so um, we had a little storage uh, shed on the other side of the, the swimming pool, and I came up with the idea, why don't we turn it into a writing nook, you know, writer's office for you? And so we did that, and he likes to go out there, away from everybody, away from the dogs, away from the cats, away from the kids, and it's quiet. Um, he doesn't have a phone out there. He does have his cell phone, but it, there's no landline. And he goes out there and he veggies. And sometimes you have to go and say, all right, you've been out here way too long. It's time for dinner. But I have a secret weapon. What I do is he's, he's also the cook. He's an excellent cook. And... I use my secret weapon, which is the kids. 
he can tell me, no, I, I can't come in now. I'm in the middle of this. I've got to finish this section, this paragraph, this whatever. But he can't tell the kids that, you know. He can't tell the the girls, no. You know, he might say, I'll, I'll be in in five minutes, but they wait on him. So <laughs> it's like, uh, come on, Dad. We know this this routine. So so that's uh, that's been a, a, a real godsend is, is sending the kids out to him and saying, you know, Dad, you've been working too much. And now that he's getting a little older, he needs to take it easy, you know, uh, easier than he has been in the past. He can't do the, you know, 23 hours on and sleep for four and then go back and do another 16. You know, like yeah, I said, we might not get of, five books out of him every year now. Exactly. You might not get five books out of him, but um, I think his quality is, is, is better than it was a couple of years ago just because he is resting more. And so might not have the quality quantity but i think the quality is a lot better so yeah well it's uncompromising honor which comes out in october by the way is any yeah. testament to that which it is and it's great um then, then, he's uh, very very proud of that one so that's good and he's he's just finished like uh well he's doing the final edit pass on the newest um safe hold book um which we don't have a date for that release yet but it'll be sometime next year and he's really happy with it so he's kind of fought this one a little bit. It didn't. It didn't go gently into that good night. So he had to um, step back away from it for a couple of days and you know talk it through with me a little bit what he wanted to accomplish. And I'm his sounding board. I think a lot of spouses are that. You know he's he's got to work things through. And sometimes he it's better if he talks to somebody about it when he's while he's doing that. So. And by the way, we're learning about zeppelins right now, so I can't tell you, <laughs> you how many zeppelins. you vote zeppelins. It, it's uh, yeah, how many how many you know pounds uh, tons of zinc it's going to require to produce the gas to yeah float zeppelins. So there you go. Uh, author spouses learn some interesting things, it seems. Oh yeah, whether you want to or not. That was part one of a two-part interview. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corval's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount an armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems.
Traveling with Dutiful Trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 32 The Garden of Gems, Langlast Port Welcome, Master Trader, Tarona Rusk called from the back of the store. Please join me here so that we may talk in comfort. The shop was not so brightly lit today, though the cases themselves blazed with light and color. Sean walked slowly toward the back and the waiting vendor, giving each case that he passed a searching glance. It was a thing traders learned, or they did not stay long at trade, to assess a sample case or a display shelf with a glance, on the alert for anomalies and items of interest. Thus far, though it was a perfectly adequate shop of its kind, Nothing in the Garden of Gems caught his trained eye. Unless Master Rusk had something very interesting indeed back in her corner, this was destined to be a very short visit. One must be courteous, of course, but if there was nothing on offer that would fit the passage's mix, that was simply a fact of business. Ahead, the vendor waited, standing beyond a darkened case. He stepped forward, there being nothing to see, and cried out in agony as fire shot along his veins and his life boiled away. He crouched inside heel space, one knee and one fisted hand braced against the misty ground. His breath came in great sobs, his thoughts staggering and disordered, pain, gods, the pain. You left the pain behind you, child. Here now, let me help you stand. The voice. He raised his head and looked into a familiar, hawk-nosed face. Loot. His other self produced an edged smile. There now. I knew your wits hadn't wandered far. Sean cast that aside with a toss of his head. What just happened? You walked into a trap, your henchman at the follow. I don't wish to concern you, but it would seem your case is dire. I am with you. What would you have me do? Sean stared into the black eyes, which were as serious as ever he'd seen them. If you are truly able to do anything in my time and space, protect my daughter. That trap was closed on one of us previously, and our enemy is without mercy. I will do what I may for the maiden, your daughter. Stand now and gather what strength you may from this good place. Loot rose and held down one wiry hand. Sean took it and rose, distressed to find that he needed the aid. Come to me now. Lute said, opening his arms. Sean likewise opened his arms, and they embraced. 
strength rose in him, cold and implacable. The thousand cuts through which his life had bled out were healed, and he heard his blood singing in his veins. He saw the links to Paddy, to Priscilla, as bars of living light, and Lute cradled him as sweetly as his mother had used to do. He sighed, drawing upon the virtue of heel space, then blinked as if woken from a dream. As Lute ended the embrace and stepped back, raising his hand to show the red counter, held between thumb and forefinger. A token, Lute murmured, so that the maiden will believe. He turned his head abruptly. She comes, he said sharply. Fare you well, child, I to the maiden. He was gone, faded away into the mists just before the mists themselves faded, and Sean opened his eyes into a blare of light. He was sitting in a chair. No, he corrected himself, glancing down. He was bound quite thoroughly into a chair. His back straight, his arms tight against the rests, his feet flat on the floor, knees wrapped with the chair legs. He could move his head, which he did at a slight sound from his left. Vanner Higgs sat, unbound, in a chair very similar to his. His blunt, lived-in face was utterly without expression. His eyes were open, but it was plain that he saw nothing. Sean extended his senses, seeing a tangle of black intent, twisted cunningly around the man's emotive pattern and around what might be his waking mind. Splendid, you return, a woman's voice exclaimed from quite nearby. How did you enjoy your first kiss from the Dramley's killer? He turned his head to face Tarona Rusk, his captor, sitting on the desk before him, leaning back on her hands and utterly at her ease. Sadly, without finesse, he replied, keeping his voice calm. I wonder why you have removed me from its embrace. An excellent question. She smiled as if he were a particularly clever student. While there are those of us who believe that it would satisfy our mission goal to simply deprive Corval of its master trader, Jos Galen of its Thodelm, and Valcon Jos Felium of his Charlequette, others of us wish to conserve resources. I speak no flattery when I say that you are extremely powerful, doubly so for one who is merely Shah Dramliza. As a teaching master myself, I find it possible to be critical of your teachers. They did not push you hard enough, merely, curiously, to the point where it suited you to have them give over, eh? Coming full Dramliza would not have done for you at all, would it? A healer might yet pursue a life of trade, but a Dramliza would have other calls upon his time and his nature. Power alone does not a Dramliza make, Sean said, his inner sight on the dire tangle around Vanner's soul. The man had not moved, he had not blinked, 
He was utterly in thrall, and if that was the work of the woman before him. True, very true, Tarona Rusk said now, as if they were merely chatting over tea. Proper training, however, may accomplish much with raw resource. Sometimes, you know, we masters must be a little cruel in order to open our students to their fullest potential. You will understand presently. Do you intend to make me your student then? As much as it must pain me to say it, I would prefer not. You will change your mind in time, she said, with perfect good cheer. Now, in a moment, you will be tested. If you are not able to rise to the challenge, well, there is always the path favored by those of us who see harm to Corval as the greatest good we might accomplish. I will tell you, however, that I believe you will triumph in the testing. Your faith in me is humbling, Sean murmured, but I do not think that I am interested in participating in your test. That is every student's choice, she said cordially. Attend me now. She raised a hand and pointed at Vanner, sitting enthralled and motionless. Here we have a subject. I shall influence him to an action, while you will seek to influence him to a different action. Thus, we shall test your innate ability. Sean took a breath, trying to still the sudden fear. He is not of Corval, and he is not of the Dramlees, he said reasonably. You have no quarrel with him. Let him go. Certainly, he is no Dramleeser. Huh? Blind and dumb, this one, and so charmingly open to suggestion. Thus... Sitting stiff in his chair, Vanner moved, slowly, while his face remained blank and his eyes remained sightless. He raised his right hand, reached beneath his jacket, and withdrew his gun. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of An Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Bain intern Jonathan Graubaird for editing help, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a raucous round of applause, huzzahs, woos, and oh boys, plus fireworks, rocket ships, and a wish that nuclear fires of thanks, praise, and admiration warm the cockles of their hearts. To Emily Butler, Bridget Correa, Dan Hoyt, Maggie Nowakowska, Mona Pinet, and Sharon Rice Weber, spouses of a whole host of Bane authors. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 